Hello, everyone. Uh, we are starting a new season of the podcast, Hewlett Packard Labs podcast from Research to Reality. We're experimenting with something new. This time, we will try uh, topics and we'll do them on a quarterly basis. We'll start the first quarter with a topic of the future of HPC, future of high performance computing. And it is my great honor and pleasure uh, to have Nick Dubay uh, open up this uh, season, the second season and this topic. Uh, Nick is uh, chief technologist at the high performance computing and mission critical systems in Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Hello, Nick. Hi, Dan. Good to see you. Great, great to have you. Uh, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this opening. Uh, you have a great track record and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to great topics. Uh, let's start with your title. What does it mean? What is the role of chief technologist? What do you do and how you became what you are now? So I'm the, I'm the chief technologist for HPC within the, uh, the CPO office of the, uh, for the combined HPC mission critical. Um, so what does Nick do? So the chief technologist for HPC, my job is, uh, there, it, there's kind of multiple angles. Re really the core of my job is to look at the future of the technology. Uh, is, is our strategy um, targeting uh, the right intercepts, right? And on a horizon of uh, not just next year, but two years, three years, five years down the road. Um, historically, I've worked on Path Forward. I was, um, uh, we're just wrapping up that program and uh, the PI for system architecture on Path Forward. I've worked on a lot of large systems. I also get to support the sales teams uh, worldwide for, for strategic customer engagements. I'm obviously involved in the, uh, in the Exascale systems, uh, both architecture and delivery. So, um, so it, it's kind of a, uh, the chief technologist is, is there to help the people with complex or strategic kind of um, considerations. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm really happy to do that because I get to touch uh, to a lot of things. One day I can be working on, on silicon photonics or optics. The other day I'm working on, um, on software aspects or on power and cooling. So uh, uh, you get to have a, it's a fairly broad role uh, that I find very interesting. Sounds like a dream job and perfectly matching uh, your profile. Uh, but tell us a little bit more about high performance computing in uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Uh, how has that changed in recent years and in general? So it's been a journey. We've um, I joined HP about uh, ten years ago when uh, we were at the time uh, our definition of uh, high performance computing was to basically take at the time we were building a lot of boxes for hyperscalers and our our definition of an HPC platform was to basically put an InfiniBand card in one of those uh, boxes. And then that would become our HPC platform. So we've come a long way since then. Uh, we have our own product lines, both kind of for volume HPC and for leadership HPC. And we have systems with uh, full water cooling and high voltage DC distribution. And so we really have, I think, elevated our game, uh, I think organically and um, firstly. But then we made some really interesting acquisitions with, with SGI and Craig. Uh, first one was SGI. So uh, with SGI, we not only acquired uh, great technology, but we really acquired great people and a great culture. Uh, I've, uh, as soon as I was allowed to, uh, I jumped on a plane. I went to Minneapolis and Chippewa Falls just to, to see the people, shake hands, and welcome them to HP. And I think that was a uh, that was a, a really good acquisition. 
And then a couple of years later, uh, so made the offer, closed the offer. And then later on when it closed, I was really happy to see all of that. So it makes it that, I mean, from, from, from HP, right, that, which we were when I joined uh, about 10 years ago, to then HP growing organically, bringing SGI, bringing prey, now we're really the place to go to build leadership HPC. We're company. There's there's really nothing even close to uh, to our capability uh, across the board, right? Hardware, interconnect, software, uh, leading edge technology. So it's uh, it's pretty awesome. You mentioned that uh, you are working on the future of, of high performance computing. Uh, what is that future? So there, there's a couple, there's a couple of big trends uh, that we see, we see shaping up for the for the next decade, um, and I think it's really important for us to be um, to be fully conscious of those and, and to address them in our in our product portfolio and our execution. Most importantly, if you look back just a couple of years ago, it was really, I mean, it was really all about Intel, right? That the we were ship all the systems we were shipping. Intel dominated the market two or three years ago. And then AMD uh, spun up with both, uh, first a good processor and now like really interesting GPUs as well, GPU, GPUs. Um, and and that, those Intel system back then, right? It, were, it was Intel CPUs and NVIDIA GPUs. But now Intel's also spinning up their own discrete GPU play. Uh, the first of which will be in the, in the Argon system that soon to be deployed for, uh, Intel's Exascale at, the, at Argonne National Labs, then AMD, again, CPU and GPU, and then NVIDIA with the move uh, to acquire ARM is also really making a stance on having a full ecosystem. Yes, with a very solid GPU and software stack, but also with the supporting ecosystem silicon around it. So that means that not only we have only one, uh, no longer only one processor vendor, but it's like, I just gave you a triple that has both processors and, and, and accelerators. And then, but that's just kind of the, the standard von Neumann um, paradigm, if you will. But then there's an explosion, we call it the Cambrian explosion of silicon diversity that's coming from, I mean, pick your favorite, Cerebra, Sambanova, Next Silicon, Havana Labs. Um, a lot of them are actually building custom silicon for uh, for machine learning, but there's a couple others like Next Silicon, for instance, that that's doing something really interesting that's not that doesn't apply just to machine learning. And the reason for that is not only I think the workloads have diversified; we're no longer just doing you know the traditional simulation HPC, uh, but we're doing machine learning. We're we're really funneling in a lot of I mean big data. Uh, but it's beyond just data analytics. It's big data that's coming from the big edge devices. Think of uh, particle accelerators or light sources or uh, very large scale um, uh, radio telescopes or things like that. So all of that is getting funneled in. And ultimately, um, there are opportunities to design silicon that's more targeted to these workloads. So as the workloads are diversifying, and as you know, with the end of the energy scaling, we're more challenged in cramming more general purpose compute per unit of silicon. Well, that opens up a, a, a great, it's a great opening for innovation where you get to have all of that silicon diversity that will cover some of those use cases and some of those specific workloads. So I think for us, this is a trend we cannot, uh, we cannot ignore. 
So not only we're going to have kind of the big three, but we need to move into a, uh, an execution model that also allows us to, um, to, be, to empower and be empowered by all of those new silicon players that are coming to the market. So it appears there's a lot of heterogeneity that is introduced. So how are we going to address this heterogeneity? Uh, I've heard of things like packaging, uh, high bandwidth memory. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So um, packaging is actually, uh, what's interesting there is that it comes from pressure from the fab process. If you look at an NVIDIA GPU today, it's a pretty big die. And if you want to have good yields out of that, uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's more challenging. So what a lot of silicon vendors have done is that they've gone to multi-chip modules where they're going to have smaller dies made on, on the wafers. And then when you combine them together, you do have, uh, you, you net out at a higher yield per silicon wafer. Of course, you're going to have the packaging yield, which two or three years ago, people were concerned about. But now, I mean, co-packaging, multi-chip modules, I mean, it's been around for quite a while. And now uh, it's a process that, that the, um, the silicon manufacturers are really able to, uh, to crank out. And uh, the packaging yield is really not a problem. In fact, uh, if you look at AMD's chart that they, they had at Hot Chips in 2018, they show that doing a 32-core processor with a monolithic die um, is, uh, it, say, it's a cost of one, while doing the same compute capability of 32 cores um, with four eight-core dies, you, you're at about 59, 60, or rounded to 60% of the cost of the monolithic die one. And you even... That's not even accounting for early yields loss where you're really gonna benefit from having a, um, a smaller die when you're, you're slicing and dicing the wafers and you have, you have some defective ones. So I think that's um, co-packaging also enables heterogeneity because it allows you in the future to basically have on the same multi-chip module, a uh, say a general purpose um, compute like CPU die, and then you can have a, uh, a GPU for, uh, for with a lot of smaller cores uh, to do more parallel processing. And then you can, you can have a DSP or you can have a machine learning chip. And then you can basically kind of combine these uh, to, to have a custom device for, for a given workload or, or application. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that this will be the, the, the default case on how silicon is going to get shipped, but the, um, the whole the whole aperture just opened with with all mm -hmm. of that uh, both packaging and the uh, the silicon heterogeneity. The the other thing you mentioned is high bandwidth memory and high bandwidth memory is somewhat related to that because high bandwidth memory gets connected uh, on the on the MCM on the multi chip module and it gives it just changes completely the ratios of memory bandwidth per core that we've seen uh, kind of coming down over the last. Um, over the last 10 years. If you look at it from, from kind of time it back to Nehalem, which was one of the, the, it was a big milestone on Intel's kind of HPC uh, processor roadmap. Although we've gone up about 60X on the peak flumps, uh, the memory delivered per socket, even, if, even though we've been to, to DDR, various versions of DDR3 and then DDR4, it's really only gone like, about five or six X. So we, we kind of, over the last 10 years, we've grown an order of magnitude gap 
between our, our, our growth rate and peak flops versus our growth rate in memory bandwidth delivered per socket. And even worse is that the, the way we got the peak flops is by adding more core, not so much by really augmenting the IPC. So when you map that down, you have a lot more flops thanks to a lot more cores, and then your memory bandwidth really isn't rising that much. Well, what that means is that you actually get less delivered memory bandwidth per core when you net it out. And that's for standard kind of DDR3, DDR4, and DDR5 processors. What's good is that with HBM, we, that it's, it basically it's a drastic shift on that curve. We're now gonna be able to deliver uh, sustained bandwidth for, uh, for processors and, and accelerators at a much higher rate. And a great example of that, for instance, is the, uh, the A64FX, it's the Fujitsu chip that has, it's just more of a kind of classical CPU, but it does embed HBM memory on it. And that's the chip that's part of the number one system today in the top 500 that, that, that ranks the, the top 500 largest supercomputers. It's not only number one on the top 500, but it's also number one on HPCG, which, which is a benchmark on conjugate uh, gradient. Um, and that's a much tougher number to achieve. And it's actually, to, on HPCG, it's number one by, by an even further kind of, a, kind of gap because it's a very balanced system. Not only the, it has a, a very capable interconnect, but it, thanks to the HBM on each CPU, it, ha it also has great memory bandwidth to be able to deliver that uh, to the apps and the, uh, the various workloads. So I think the class of exascale system we're delivering, sure, we're gonna have 10 to the 18, right, flops, which is, which is a great milestone to reach, but all of the technology around it in terms of interconnects uh, and in terms of the, the HBM will, is actually enabling us to build very capable system um, in the future. Uh, and I, I think that's a great thing. You touched on interconnect. Uh, how is interconnect important for high performance computing? Um, and also, can you speak about um, importance of standards in interconnects, uh, as well as uh, the media like optical? So uh, in a recent interview from, uh, from Inside HPC, it's interesting because the, the, the reporter was asking me, he started the, uh, the interview asking me, so. Uh, everybody, everybody talks about what's difficult at Exascale. Is there anything that's easy about Exascale? And my answer was no, everything's hard at Exascale. But the problem is that everything's hard, but all of those things need to come together so that we can run applications at large scale. And the interconnect is a fundamental part of this. And that's actually what makes the difference between HPC and kind of the cloud workloads. When we're running a code on a supercomputer, we need to have thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of nodes that all need to compute together. And the, the code will typically uh, um, kind of run in steps. And at every chunk of the way, maybe every hour, or every couple hours, uh, there's gonna be a synchronization step uh, where data is kind of exchanged between the nodes. If it's a multi-physics model or, um, pretty much all the large-scale HPC workloads like that work like that. And the problem you've got is if you have an interconnect that's not able to keep everybody chugging kind of at the same rate and you have congestion, things like that, when you get to that synchronization, everybody stops until the straggler shows up. 
So it's really important to have an interconnect that can keep everybody kind of coming along. And Slingshot that we, uh, we acquired from Prey actually has some great uh, congestion, um, congestion control capabilities uh, where, where it can basically make sure that uh, unless you're, you have, uh, it's basically shutting down adversarial traffic and making sure that well-behaved well traffic comes across and is able to make this thing. So that's a fundamental uh, thing in, the, in Slingshot. But moreover, why are interconnects so important in HPC? And I think what's really uh, interesting is that by, by taking Slingshot from the Cray side, but by taking all of our photonics R&D we've been doing at HP, which is both on, on, on pixels that are, uh, that are kind of very high speed, little mini miniature uh, lasers, or if you will, uh, or the ring resonators that's been uh, led under, uh, under Ray, under Ray Bosolite, we have fundamental optics technology that's coming in. And now we're able to pair that up with Slingshot. So we not only have a great fabric in terms of switches, HCAs, um, you know, the, the silicon piece of it, but we also have a, um, all of the, the capability to move all of those packets in and out at very high throughput, thanks to the HP optics technology. So it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a great marriage to bring, bring those things together. And only, the only way we could have done that was to, to get the two companies together. So you touched on the applications and software running on this hardware. So tell us a little bit more about the software for high performance computing. What are the key challenges beyond those that you mentioned? And how do all these architectural implications affect software? So there, there's multiple layers of a software in HPC that are all uh, that are all play a, that all play a critical role. If you look at, at the base software, right, the OS software, the management layers, and what runs the system, I mean, really, you want it to, to scale, but then when the code, when the app is actually running, you want it to get the hell out of the way. You want it to be like it's not there. Because the same way I explained on the interconnect, you want to have something that makes sure you have no straggler to meet the bearer. The same applies on software. If you have an OS that's got a lot of jitter, that's how we call it, uh, and that's making some nodes more or less uh, slow or slower than others, well, you have those sync issues. So the base layer of the software stack, you really want it to scale, but then when the app is running, it's, it's kind of like, get out of the way. On top of that, then you have the runtime environment. Um, I, the runtime environment is where um, it, it's kind of the middle layer between the app and uh, the, um, the, the, the base software layer. And that's fundamental because that's what allows the programmer to scale their application across the system. That's what allows the developer to, to map to different silicon. And between you know, the HP legacy stuff, the SGI legacy software, and now the Cray one, we have a great asset there to bring that together so that not only we can fully enable the users to write the codes uh, at, to scale, but we also have uh, a great runtime environment that can be adapted to support the heterogeneity I was just talking about. And um, that software, especially applications, they're organized in the complex workflows. Uh, how, how does that work out? So, we used to have, um, I, I touched on that a little bit earlier on, HPC used to be mostly uh, simulation HPC, right? Where you would, you would have an mathematical model, you'd set initial conditions, 
you'd run for a couple hours, a couple of days, or sometimes and maybe even longer than that. And then you get your uh, simulated result or simu simulated view of the world. We're still doing a lot of that, but now we're doing even more of, uh, instead of kind of uh, doing a parameter sweep or, or setting initial conditions in kind of a um, pro pro programmatic way, we're taking the data from, uh, from big sensors, from all of that, feeding that in, uh, and that, that means it's, it's a lot more data, a lot of times, and we need to, we need to filter it, we need to pre-process it, and then, and then we run the models on it. But what's really interesting as well is that, a and, and some of the cases, uh, when the runs are so long, uh, HPC standards would couple a visualization uh, kind of body next to it so that they could do simulation steering, depending if it went in the right direction or not. Well, what's really interesting now uh, some of the labs are doing that, are starting to do that, is by using machine learning, you replace the human that was doing simulation steering, and you can have something that's a lot more active, that's following the simulation very closely and, and steering it in the right direction, depending on what you're actually looking for by having some objective functions you, you put in the machine learning code. So the workflows are no longer just um, the, the, the traditional simulation HPC, it's really about feeding all of that data and coupling to the machine learning. So that's what we call complex workflows. They, they kind of cover all of the spectrum of, um, of, the, of the compute. And I, I think, I, I, you know, as a computer engineer, I think that's pretty amazing. That's really, that's really, that's a really exciting time. Yeah. So, so we started with the technology, then move on to the hardware, software applications. Let's talk a little bit about the delivery models. In the past, you would deliver HPC by acquiring supercomputer and then you just have it and then get another acquisition. There's a lot of discussion about um, delivering HPC as a service in the cloud. And people are talking about the hybrid delivery as well. So tell us a little bit more, why is economic model, including your PhD thesis, uh, really important in this area? And what is uh, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise advantage in delivering this hybrid model? Well, a um, couple of thoughts on, the, on, on hybrid HPC. I think we will remain having on-prem supercomputers for the foreseeable future, just because uh, it's a matter of, of cost structure, of efficiency, of, and of capability, honestly, as well. Uh, because that, I mean, the, the hyperscalers or even what HP might deploy in the cloud is somewhat more of a, of a, of a general purpose kind of a kind of infrastructure. So I think we're going to keep having, uh, supercomputing centers that build leadership supercomputers, no doubt about that. Now, I think there's also really a use case for burst capability. Think, think about a, um, in uh, the automotive industry, pick your, your favorite car manufacturer. Uh, if they will have, say, an on-site, on-prem uh, supercomputer to run uh, most of their workloads as they go, but then let's say that they're going to production with a car and for whatever reason, um, it, it fails certification on, on the crash test. Well, the companies are no longer really crashing cars like they, do to, like they used to do as much. They, they're doing that in simulation. So now they have they have burst uh, a need for bursting out because they need to redo all of their models because they changed the bumper or something like that. Maybe they don't have that capability on site. So having the the option 
in a very easy way, hopefully just from their scheduler to be able to say, hey, that workload, it's a high priority. We're willing to pay for spot instances on that, um, say in the HPE cloud or something like that, just click, it goes, it bursts out, it computes, it comes back. Uh, I think there's tremendous value in being able uh, to deliver that. So then people are no longer provisioning resources on site for, for peak loads, but they'll provision for what they, they kind of really need. And then when they get peak, then they can just burst off site, get the result back. Uh, and I think that's, that's a great use case for, for hybrid HPC. The other use case I think comes from that heterogeneity aspect. With, when we're now looking at dozens of silicon alternatives, I don't see how any supercomputing standard will be able to uh, procure, maintain, support, uh, deploy all of that, all of those uh, different architectures. So I think the conditions are set for a rebirth of the grid. If you remember the Oxford yep. Kesselman books of about 15 years ago, um, where, where sites will be sharing capability between, between them and where, uh, where system vendors like HP can also play a role in, in supporting that, that liquidity and that diversity uh, into the ecosystem. Uh, great, great examples and, and great explanation. Thanks for that. We spoke a lot about technology. Let's flip the, the page a little bit. Uh, you are working out of Canada and uh, you're working remotely. Uh, now everyone's working remotely, but you've been doing it for some time. So tell us, how does it work for you? What does it mean for a person in Canada to work for a US company? So it's interesting because, you know, uh, as we work remotely, uh, as we have for Oh, over six months now, um, I still come to the office, to my, to my little office uh, here in Quebec City, and I really get into my, my U.S. mindset because I work in a, for a U.S. company, and for me, I, I kind of work in the U.S. I, I'm not connected in, the, um, in, in, in Canada so, I mean, so much. My role is really focused with leading the team worldwide. Uh, I mean, our team on the CPO office is between the West Coast, uh, some folks on the East Coast uh, in the US or me in Canada, some folks in the UK, we have some folks in India. So we're really kind of uh, a worldwide team. And I think that's the nature of how, uh, how you build uh, very successful and kind of a, you get the best people from where they live. And uh, I think the, the idea of uh, having to bring everybody down to Silicon Valley all the time I think it's evolving and I think that's a good thing. I've worked in Silicon Valley. I've lived in, in the Valley for a couple of years, but having that option to, uh, to have a leadership role in a tech company, but um, living in Canada and, uh, you know, in a, in a much more kind of a, I don't know, the going home is, is a lot more chill, if you will, than uh, the way of life in, the, in, the, in California. And in the Bay Area, it's like if you have if you if you aren't doing calculus in like seventh or eighth grade, you're kind of a loser. And I mean, I don't want honestly, I, I kind of don't want my son to have to go through that. I want him to play around, to to, to play with frogs, to launch rockets, to build stuff, to blow stuff up, and he can learn cal calculus later on. So I'm I'm kind of very as driven as, as, as I may be, you know, in my job at HP, my family values are a lot more laid back. I, for me, that's very important. That, that's something very special. 
So you have two immigration points at that door over there. One is US-Canada, the other is work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, and given that you work out of Canada, uh, worldwide, there's a lot of discussion and rightfully so about inclusion and diversity. How is it treated from your perspective from what you see in Canada? So, I mean, Canada is a very diverse country, uh, but it's, it's treated in a very different way, uh, I think, than what I see, uh, what I see in the U.S. Um, for instance, um, it's almost like diversity, uh, and I'm not going to, I don't want to say it's the case everywhere for everybody, but in general, in Canada, diversity is embraced. So in, instead of trying to put everybody on the same level, we actually recognize that people have um, more skills than others, right? Being a being a long-term, uh, being long descent Quebecois, right? I can walk on snow, I can tolerate cold really well, but I can't run, I can't jump. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm not physically good at that my DNA just doesn't carry that, but there's other things I'm good at. And then I think in Canada, we celebrate that. It's, it's good that people are different. I wish we can get um, the US and the rest of the world actually to celebrate diversity. I, I love your explanations. Uh, you said that uh, you cannot run, but there are some other sports that you can do extremely well. I heard about your successes in skiing, uh, in sailing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So yeah, so those are, I, I guess those are things that uh, <laughs> a little white kid quite can do. So skiing, uh, yeah, I did, I did, I did competitive skiing. Skiing, I um, uh, I coached for 15 years. I truly, uh, I, I still miss it. I truly enjoy coaching uh, racing kids. I did that for, uh, as I said, 15 years. So that was amazing. Um, and I still go skiing with my son. Uh, my, it's kind of shameful in a way, but my son started skiing like a month after he was walking. So, but that's 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 how we are around here. So that's good. Um, and then I did a lot of competitive sailing as well on, uh, on F-18 catamarans that are very fast uh, sailboats. Um, you learn a lot of things, I think, uh, sailing high, very high speed boats like that. Um, number one, it's very physical. Uh, people think sailing is, uh, have a view of sailing or going on a big yacht and uh, you got someone else trimming your sails and everything. So sure, there's a version of sailing that's like that but not when you're competing in the national levels or the world like we did on F-18s, it, it's very physical. And, and you can, you're actually, you're not only exhausted because a regatta will be typically over, uh, the big regattas will, will last five to seven days. You're gonna have anywhere between four to six races a day. Every race is about an hour and it's full on, very physical, exhausted. And when it blows, I mean, you can really, when the wind blows hard, you can really hurt yourself. Uh, and, and go near drowning multiple times. So with, um, it, it, mentally, you're physically so exhausted. So mentally, you need to learn to, to deal with that. You need to also learn how to ride the boat to the limit. If you've never capsized, if you've never flipped over, if you've never pitch pole, you don't know where the limit is. So if you, if you want to be good at sailing, it's about riding the limit, uh, but not over it. And that, that's where you win. And I... To me, that's um, that I, I sometimes push on on the technology angle, but that's definitely some maybe some of my uh, sailing background that's coming in here. 
The other thing you get uh, sailing is the strategy piece. Um, so on our boat, I'm, uh, I'm, I was the helm. And it's all about looking at, sure, you need to make your boat go fast. If you don't go fast, you're, you're nowhere. But you also need to look at what everybody else is, is going to do. Uh, you need to make sure you get clear wind so you're not in the bad wind of someone. You also need to see which way, uh, which direction the wind uh, is going to come. So as much as it's physically demanding, it's also very psychologically demanding. The other thing psychologically you need to learn is if you have a bad race, you need to move on because the next race, it's a new start. And ultimately, the way you win a regatta is by having the maximum uh, the lowest number of uh, the maximum point basically adds up by having the, the most number ones or number twos ranking, if you will, in the week. So you have a bad one, you get over it, and the next race, you won, you need the race. Um, I mean, maybe two more small things. On a sailboat, you can't run it by yourself. You're a crew, and you need, you need the crew to think as one. And that's fundamental. If you, if you don't get to that level of synergy, you're, you're just not going to win. You're just not going to go fast. The crew also needs, and Antonio says that, right? Commit and go. A catamaran, even if you're the best in the world, takes time to tack. If you're constantly tacking, you're just, you're losing speed. You're not moving. So when you tack and you say, we're gonna tack because the wind is gonna, we think the wind's gonna shift that way. You gotta hold your tack. Even if you think after a couple of boat lengths, you think it's the wrong decision, you need to stick to it make your boat go fast, and then call the right back at the right time. So it's all about um, committing and go. So to me, sailing, it's, it's physical, it's psychological, it's teamed. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very complete sport. Um, and it really, uh, you know, driving the strategy and how you're going to position and everything. So I've learned a lot um, sailing. We had a fair amount of success, but uh, I miss doing it. I'll pro hopefully one day I'll get back to competitive uh, camera and sailing with my sons. Uh, and then they're going to kick me off the boat because I'm not going to be fast enough to move around, but that's okay. That's all good. So I, I really love this. A lot of parallels to the leadership and teamwork uh, in your daily job. Uh, you can learn a lot and transfer experiences back and forth. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, really amazing uh, interview. Very insightful about uh, work, technology, but also about private, private life, uh, work-life balance, and many others. All right. Thanks, Leon. That was great to talk to you. Yeah.